I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, go to our webpage, that's IThinkThereforeIFan.com, all one word, click on the link that says Donate, and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. In this episode, we discuss Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, the Back to the Future series, It's a Wonderful Life, Doctor Strange, Avengers Infinity War, Holmes and Watson, Holmes and Yo-Yo, Ozark, and The Grinch. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. everyone. Welcome. Today's episode is motivated by a trip to the movies that we took this weekend. Uh, we went to see Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and we really loved it. Um, and I th- we thought it'd be fun to do an episode on the multiverse and different uses of po- the concept of possible worlds, both in philosophy and in pop culture. Yeah, so um, maybe before we start tying it together with some of the pop culture, we should just say a little bit about the different views that are out there. Um, I think a lot of folks just sort of think, oh, yeah, there's this thing, it's the multiverse. Um, but the, the conceptions that you get are quite different from one another, right? In some cases, um, drastically different. So just a little unpacking seems to be in order. Um, let's start with the scientific understanding of the multiverse, right? So... Um, you know, it's, it's certainly controversial within theoretical physics as to whether there is just one universe, the universe that, that um, we or most of us um, inhabit, or there are multiple universes. So you've, you've got the camps that would deny multiple universes and the camps that embrace them. Those that, that embrace the idea of a multiverse, um, you know, the different physicists will present very different views, right? In some cases, there's, you know, three or four different universes. Um, and this is the same thing, you know, the same idea as a parallel universe, right? These universes operate parallel with one another. Um, there's, you know, some sort of um, cosmic fabric keeping them apart. They don't, they don't overlap at all. Um, in other cases, right, there are nine multiverses. And in some cases, there are many more than that. Um, so, you know, when we talk about the, the multiverse, um, we could be talking about a lot of different things um, just within the category of the way physicists conceive of the multiverse. Quick question. Uh, is there a reason for thinking about these in terms of being distinct universes rather than distinct dimensions comprising a single universe? Um, yes and no, depending on which physicist you talk to. Um, okay. So, for example, you know, some of the string theorists. Um, would cash out the idea of different universes as just different dimensions, mm-hmm. right? Um, but others would think of them as being comprised 
of the same dimensions that we have here, right? Space, um, length, width, height, time, etc. Um, and just distinct sets of those okay. within each universe. So, um, yeah, again, a, a lot of variation. All right, so we have the scientific idea. We also have philosophical accounts of different possible worlds. So there's um, you know a whole number of theorists that work on this, um, but you know probably the two most prominent philosophers of the last fifty years are the ones that sort of spearhead the the two main camps, and they're they're diametrically opposed to one another. So that would be um, David Lewis and and Saul Kripke. Um, and just sort of interesting fact, um, you know, if you're a professional philosopher, where you went to grad school might bear greatly on um, your your take of this. So we'll, we'll see if this bears out with Rachel and I. So I went to a, a school where it seemed like almost everything we talked about um, was put through this sort of Kripkean lens. Um, Rachel went to a, a graduate program where they did the same thing only um, with the views of Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you get these you know, drastically different um, views, you know, competing views um, in pockets, right? It's, it's you know, if, if half the philosophers are Louisians and half are Kripkeans, if you went to any particular graduate program, it wouldn't be a 50-50 mix, right? <laughs> this grad program is 100% Lewis. This grad program is 100% Kripke. And other than this... If they do metaphysics. Yeah. I mean, and, otherwise and, they might just not have any attitudes about this at all. Right. And, and other than this particular issue, the two aren't greatly at odds with one another. Um, you know, and in fact, they, they were at the same department, you know, for quite a while at Princeton. Um, okay. So just to, to give you the thumbnail sketch of each, right? So Lewis's view is sometimes called modal realism, right? And so he's committed to the idea that... Um, any possible world, right? Any way sort of that the world might be um, exists, right? So we tend to think that we're in the actual world and other worlds are merely possible. What's interesting about Lewis's view is we will call our world the actual world because it's the world that we're in, but it's in fact um, metaphysically no different from the other possible worlds. They're real too, and the inhabitants of those worlds would consider them to be the actual world. So on, on Lewis's view, any, if something is a possible world, a, a logically possible way that the universe could be, that world exists, right? And ours is, is just one of many, perhaps an infinite number. Um, Kripke, on the other hand, when he talks about possible worlds, he talks about different ways the actual world could be, right? So when he refers to another possible world, he's not referring to a different universe at all. Um, so I, his view commits him to there just being an actual world. And when we talk about possible worlds, we're just imagining the actual world had it gone differently. So if we want to put all this together, you've got a, you know one extreme, Lewis, where all possible worlds, all possible universes exist. Um, at the other extreme, Kripke, um, where just our world exists, um, plenty of physicists that, that are on Kripke's sides, but those that postulate a multiverse um, tend to be closer to Lewis. Um, although, you know, they could fall anywhere along the continuum in terms of the number of possible worlds that actually exist. Maybe we could do our listeners a favor here and be... Uh, uh 
elucidate some of these concepts. So um, there's some kind of common ways of understanding, everyday ways of understanding the word worlds Mm -hmm. that might get confusing here. Um, So some people will talk about worlds like uh, a world is a planet, right? And when when we're using the term possible worlds here, we're not talking about possible planets. Mm -hmm. We're talking about like total states of affairs, total uh, complete descriptions of the way uh, the universe, in fact, is. Yeah, right? yeah. So, so it's a good point about the the worlds, right? So on Star Trek, for example, when they say that we're going to investigate many worlds, mm-hmm. they don't intend that to mean that they go into the multiverse, right? Like total states they're, of affairs. They're just talking about different planets. Planets, yeah. right. So just to avoid confusion there. Um, and maybe another thing to say about um, all of this is that uh, when we are talking about possible worlds... Often, this includes a discussion of conditionals, of counterfactuals, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and counterfactuals are statements that assert facts counter to the actual facts. Mm-hmm. Had I wore a blue hat on Tuesday, I would not have gotten snow on my head, right? That sort of thing. <laughs> Lewis's right. famous example um, that, that um, he starts his book, Counterfactuals, with is, if kangaroos had no tails, they would topple over, right? <laughs> so it's a... The kangaroo's not having a tail is a fact that's counter to the way the world is. Good. Um, And just so one more thing about the big picture before we start talking about um, some of the more specific things that go on in philosophy as well as pop culture. Um, Interestingly, a lot of the debate about possible worlds um, centers around Occam's razor, right? So Occam's razor... Um, William, William of Ockham sort of famously said, don't multiply entities unnecessarily, right? And that's come to be known as, um, you know, something like, and I think this is from the movie Contact sort of made this, this interpretation famous. Um, generally speaking, the simplest explanation is the one that's going to be right, right? So other possible worlds aren't things that we can empirically verify and stuff. So the, the, the critics of the scientific critics, at least, of the multiverse and some of the philosophical critics of Lewis would say, why are you postulating all these other worlds, right? Don't multiply things un, um, unnecessarily, right? Only include them if your explanations require them. But there's been a sort of just a fascinating line of responses to that from people who embrace the multiverse that actually have argued that um, the simpler explanation is the one where there's a multiverse, where, where there are more things, right? Which sounds very counterintuitive. And they draw some sort of interesting um, parallels with, with computing, right? So they one argument that I've seen is there's this idea that um, it's easier in computation language to um, give an account of a set than it is of an individual thing, right? So that it, it's actually sort of less complicated on these views as far as the, you know, at least the algorithms involved are, are less complex. Um, it's easier on these views to postulate multiple universes than it is particular things, right? So they would suggest that there's no violation of Occam's razor. Even though it sure seems like when you talk about, you know, all possible worlds existing, you're multiplying entities like, like crazy. Interesting. So as I was preparing for this episode, I was thinking about the range of philosophical issues that have to do with a multiverse, or at least that make use of counterfactuals. 
And as I got to thinking about it, I really thought, well, it, it, it runs the full range of philosophical issues. And I also thought, you know, when we did our our episode on absurdity in the human condition, we talked a little bit about uh, the a human being's capacity or a person's capacity to uh, not only have thoughts, but to reflect on their own thoughts, to have second order thoughts. And we identified that as being something pretty unique and interesting about persons, about human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, But I think this ability to reflect on things that are contrary to fact is also a super interesting Mm -hmm. uh, feature of of existence as a person. Right. Um, Presumably cats don't think, boy, if I hadn't sat on that person's lap all day, I could have got some exercise. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, And so it, it, it makes sense. It's not surprising then that part of living a philosophically reflective life involves lots of counterfactuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one that, uh, what, one philosophical issue that is interesting from the this perspective of the multiverse and uh, counterfactuals is the concept of personal identity. And this issue gets explored in, in the movie we went to see, uh, Into the Spider-Verse. Um, and so we've got these distinct dimensions and there are different Spider-Men and women in different dimensions. And this, mm-hmm. Even if you uh, haven't seen the movie yet, that's something that's pretty clear from the previews, I think. Right, right. Um, and so there are different Peter Parkers in these different universes, and, and the, uh, the, the dimensions collide. Uh, and uh, the, the different Peter Parkers um, are distinct individuals, right? So when one Peter Parker comes into the dimension of another Peter Parker, it's not like they can both just happily go home to Mary Jane mm-hmm. uh, because this Mary Jane in this dimension is only married to one of these Peter Parkers. Right. I mean, it would be as, as strange as if just someone that wasn't your spouse <laughs> came, came into your home or something like that. It's a distinct person, even though they look similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, into the, the Spider-Verse... Um seems to rely more on kind of a, a Louisian understanding, right, of the multiverse, um, maybe without the, you know, the sort of full-on commitment to every possible world existing. Um, so on Lewis's view, right, you have all these distinct universes. They're, they're all equally um, real, at least from the, the perspective of inside them. So in a close possible world where yesterday I didn't wear my white sneakers when I went out for my walk, but I wore my brown shoes. Um, It's actually not me in that world, right? I I have a counterpart. Whereas, you know, when Kripke talks about close possible worlds, he talks about me doing different things in those worlds. So this is exactly what we see in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. You you mentioned that there's a different Peter Parker. And in, in fact, there's a different Spider-Man from all those universes, but they don't all have a Peter Parker in them, mm-hmm. right? So one's this pig named Peter Parker. and um, Which maybe suggests the possibility that the movie is is making the statement that all possible worlds exist if you've got one that's a pig. Right. Spider-Man's a pig. Right. And so <laughs> so the, the, the counterparts they, that come across, um, you know, as the, the worlds begin to compl- um, collide are different people, right? The, the Peter Parker that makes his way into our universe as opposed to the Peter Parker that was there in the film already, um, has different physical attributes. He, he doesn't look the same. He looks kind of similar. Interestingly, the Mary Janes look very similar 
in the two worlds. Um, and then as you get to sort of more remote possible worlds where um, one of them's a pig, um, you've got Spider Noir, who's this this like weird, mysterious film noir looking Spider-Man guy um, who only exists in black and white. <laughs> um, and then you've got an anime version of, of Spider-Man. Um, and this is one of the areas where, where Kripke's really critical of Lewis, right? He just thinks that the counterpart theory is is off the rails. Um, you know, for me to say yesterday I, I might have wore my brown shoes instead of my white shoes when I went on my walk, um, Kripke thinks, is not to say that there's some other person entirely who wore white shoes instead of brown shoes, but they kind of resemble me to some extent. Another philosophical issue that's frequently cashed out in terms of counterfactuals uh, is ethics and what the morally correct course of action is in any particular case. I was thinking about a fun pop culture example of this, and uh, since it's the holiday season, I thought it would be fun to talk about It's a Wonderful Life. So the premise of that movie is that uh, the main character, George, is considering whether to kill himself. And the reason he's considering whether to kill himself is that he, uh, his, his building and loan has lost $8,000. Right. And by lost, you mean Mr. Potter, the rat, stole it. Right. Yeah. And, uh, but everybody's going to think that he and the people working at the building and loan have embezzled it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, there's, there are investigators, there are auditors there to, to do just that. Um, and so... Uh, he's, he's thinking that he, he may be worth more dead than alive because his insurance payout will, be, will exceed this $8,000. Right. And so he's considering whether to kill himself, and uh, his guardian angel is sent down. And uh, he's, George considers, George wishes to himself that he'd never been born. And so the angel makes it so. Mm-hmm. So there's an interesting question there, but if I can interrupt before you go on. Sure. Um, what do you think is happening in that case? So is, is the angel making this world, the actual world, um, different? It's, a, it's you know, such that George mm-hmm. has never been born. Is he taking George to a different possible world? Is he... Um, creating an illusion, just showing him what the world would be like. I don't have um, a take on that. That's crazy, an interesting question. Crazy metaphysics there, right? Yeah. And then also there's all this stuff about, you know, what, what do angels do and what can they do? They can dance on the head of a pin and channel Roma Downey and, and stuff like that. Um, do they have that kind of power? I mean, that's... that's a, make the entire universe different. <laughs> right. And we're supposed to, to remember, you know, in this case, it's, it's Clarence who hasn't got his wings yet, right? He's like <laughs> they this, laugh about what a nitwitty is. several hundred-year-old <laughs> apprentice. Um. <laughs> so I take this as a, an exploration. We're using this counterfactual. This is a description. Where he's, he's actually making this counterfactual the case, uh, a description of what the way the world might be uh, were George not in it. And we see that the world would be a pretty dramatically different place. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that George had a significant impact on the people around him. Uh, and so it's, it becomes pretty clear that the right course of action is not to kill himself because he's so regularly impacts people so positively. Um, so we see uh, that, that this, this movie explores... A moral question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think ethical theories themselves frequently make use of counterfactuals, at least on certain readings of certain theories. So uh, I'll, I'll just mention a few. 
Um, One kind of utilitarianism, I think, can be understood as making use of counterfactuals. So uh, we can distinguish between two different forms of utilitarianism, act utilitarianism and rule utilitarianism. Uh, And they're both views about morally right actions. Mm -hmm. Um, So an act utilitarian says that the right action to perform in any given case is the one among all the the available actions that promotes the greatest amount of happiness, or if all the options are bad, it... uh, it causes the least amount of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, one common objection to act utilitarianism, though, is that it seems to require what are intuitively bad actions sometimes if they promote the greatest amount of happiness. So if it makes sense, uh, or if it, if it would promote the greatest amount of happiness, say, to murder one person in order to save five others, the, uh, the act utilitarian looks like they have to say, you must do it. Not even just that you may do it, but that you must do it. So mm-hmm. that's a pretty common objection to act utilitarianism. Right, and these, these sorts of objections are pretty ubiquitous, right? It's, it's not like this is the obscure, far-fetched thing, because mm-hmm. you know, how often is it the case that you can you know, murder one person to make things better off? Um, but you know, everyday cases, um, you know, at school, like you could imagine a, a utilitarian... Um, you know, fourth grader or something thinking, boy, if I make fun of this one kid and they suffer a lot, but everybody laughs at it, mm-hmm. right? And, and the right. numbers work out, mm-hmm. you know, you just you embarrass somebody in front of the whole school, um, which happens in, into the Spider-Verse um, yeah. a little bit, then that would be justified on this theory. Mm-hmm. And so one, one response to that objection, although it's not just a response to that objection, there are elements of both act and rule utilitarianism in um, John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism, but is to to be a rule utilitarian instead. Uh, So a rule utilitarian says that the right action to perform is the one in accordance with rules which, if generally followed, would promote the greatest amount of overall happiness. So here we're not talking about rules in the form of like laws or whatever, but general rules of thumb. Mm, what would happen if generally we murdered people? Well, the world would be a miserable place and none of us would feel safe. We'd be scared. For, people would end up dead. For human beings, right? There's, there's an environmental ethics issue that we... <laughs> right. Or mm-hmm. episode down the road where... <laughs> where we, can, we might be all, but universe yeah. might be better off. <laughs> yeah. um, and so this, though, uh, often, um, not in every case, but in many cases... Uh, requires us to imagine something that is counter to fact, right? That that this is a behavior that people are engaging in as a general rule um, and seeing whether as a general rule it would promote happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's, a for, that's an ethical theory that makes use of counterfactuals understood in that way. Um, another mo- uh, moral theory, famous moral theory that makes use of counterfactuals is... Uh, like a Kantian deontology. Deontology is the view that the moral status of an action is determined by the intentions of the person performing it. So one intention that's morally impermissible is to make an exception of yourself, to behave as if the rules that apply to everyone else don't apply to you. Right, right. So when you're considering whether your act, the action you're about to perform is moral or immoral, you have to do a little mental exercise and universalize your action. Now, of course, you're not going to, in doing this, you're not going to actually universalize the action. And what I mean by universalization here is to uh, imagine what would happen if everyone does it. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're not going to make it the case that it actually, in fact, everyone's doing it. Um, but you're imagining something that's counter to fact. What if this were universalized? Uh, and and seeing what happens, um, whether that would be uh, a desirable state of affairs. We won't go too far into the the Kantian right, analysis right. there, but just I just kind of want to point out that that ethical framework requires examining uh, what is contrary to fact. Another interesting philosophical issue related to uh, the multiverse and possible worlds uh, has to do with free will. So there's a famous argument against the existence of free will that begins with the recognition of the truth of determinism. So determinism is the thesis that every event has a cause that necessitates that event. Right, so right. The, given, and it, it, it doesn't need to just be one single cause, but a, a cause or a cluster of causes that make it the case that that event must take place. Um, and so that's employed as part of an argument known as the argument for incompatibilism, which says this. If determinism is true, then no one ever can act otherwise than they in fact do. You're only going to do one thing. Mm-hmm. If no one can ever act otherwise than they in fact do, then no one ever acts freely. Therefore, if determinism is true, no one ever acts freely. And the second premise of that argument is basically just an expression of uh, a definition of free will. And that definition of free will is essentially that free will requires the ability to choose from between more than one option. Mm -hmm. It needs to be the case that you could have done otherwise. To relate this back to our discussion of counterfactuals, one way of making sense of the notion that you could have done otherwise a common compatibilist strategy of understanding what it means to say that you could have done otherwise is that in a close possible world in which causes had been different, contingent facts of that universe are different, you would have done otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't really, I think, save free will in any significant way. Um, Right, right. And then depending on, on, you know, what conception of close possible worlds you have, um, it, it might not save anything, right? So if you've got Lewis's mm-hmm. view, um, you certainly don't want to say what it means to say that I could have done otherwise is to say that some counterpart that's not me mm-hmm. has has done otherwise. Although that that's probably what Lewis wants to say, right? Um, I, I think that's all he thinks those sorts of things amount to. Um, but yeah, it's tricky, right? So, And I think... Uh, that this all ultimately ties into a familiar category of multiverse movies, and that is time travel movies, mm-hmm. which I understand as being multiverse movies. Right, right. Uh, In many cases, almost all instances of it. Right. So I think most time travel movies, to the extent that they're philosophically coherent at all, I don't know if I think traveling back in time in particular is philosophically or scientifically coherent. Especially when they didn't build a wormhole back then. (laughs) Most time travel movies, I think, are committed to something like determinism. Mm -hmm. Because the mere act of going back in time puts you on a different timeline. They all seem quite committed to this idea that if you change important, not even important facts, if you change facts about a timeline, everything's going to change. Right, right. So we see this explored... Uh, very, in a very entertaining way in the Back to the Future movies. Mm-hmm. So Marty McFly goes back to, what is it, 1955, I guess, mm-hmm. and um, 
you know, mostly doesn't affect things, but affects things just slightly, right? Um, he, well, he affects things a lot at first, but he fixes those things. The main events in, in his parents' life at that time are roughly the same as they were. Um, his parents meet at the encampment under the sea dance. They, they kiss, they fall in love. Um, so he and his sister um, and brother will continue to exist on whatever timeline he now finds himself in. Um, but little differences. His dad has more confidence. He gets back and he's a successful mm-hmm. writer and not right. this sort of weird dude that can't do anything. And Biff Tannen, you know, washes his cars um, <laughs> and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that, that what you're talking about is exemplified pretty greatly, right? Just the, the littlest changes have these huge kind of ripple effects. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of related to this is the idea that there are different timelines, Right. So what sort of philosophical sense do we make out of that? Um, did Marty McFly go back to the same world um, that was just different? Right. He had modified it and things were different. I mean, he was clearly in a different timeline. Does that entail that he went to a different universe? Or right? dimension. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we could another set of films that deals with time travel that is explicitly doing a multiverse thing is the, the Marvel universe, right? So in particular, you see this in Dr. Strange, right? Right. And then you see it in Avengers infinity war. So particularly exemplified in the line by Dr. Strange at the end where he says, I looked forward in time and I saw something like 14 million, 605 futures and then Stark asks him, in how many of those do the Avengers defeat Thanos? And he says, one. Mm-hmm. And presumably, I'm guessing in the next movie, we're going to see that one. Yeah, or, or not. It's, it's going to be even sadder than the last <laughs> one. Right? You're going to have all these people on the Comic-Con pages saying, you know, that's it. I no longer have the will to live and, and all of that. Um, yeah, and so each of those universes, right, I mean, if if... Dr. Strange can look into them and look at the futures in each of those, those universes, right? Then they have to be determined, right? At the, the point where he enters the universe where Thanos is defeated, um, mm-hmm. at whatever point he has to enter it, presumably it's, it's prior to the defeat so they can mm-hmm. engineer things. Right. Um, that has to play out. Right. So they, they couldn't, nobody could take an action. Nobody could p- perform an action that would cause Thanos not to be defeated in that timeline. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And, and presumably, if, if, if the fact that Thanos is defeated in that timeline is already set, presumably there are a whole other range of, maybe presumably everything in that timeline is already set, and so nobody can behave otherwise. Right, and that would include whichever members of the Avengers make their way into that timeline mm-hmm. at exactly the point that they do, right? So, right. Um, you know, they, they're they may be causally determined to go to that one out of the 14 million and whatever it was universes from this universe. And then in that universe, causally determined to do whatever it is that they, they do. Um, this all sort of raises a really interesting question for me. Um, all right. So you, you've, you've got this world and you've got the, you know, 14 million other, other futures, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and in exactly one of them, Thanos is defeated. So if, if they, they bring about that one where Thanos is defeated, 
Um, and these worlds all just exist independently of one another. Who cares, right? You still have 14,604 <laughs> universes where, where Thanos wins. Um, yeah, you just, right. And, and then, of course, whichever view of, uh, you know, whether Lewis's view or Kripke's view of, of uh, possible worlds matters, because if it's, if it's Lewis's, Maybe this is just the point that you're making, yeah, yeah. but there are all these terrible possible the, worlds right. that far outnumber the single one. Right. I mean, and it's just a question of which one you find yourself in. I mean, I've, I've seen sort of interesting, you know, arguments about um, the implications of Lewis's multiple worlds. So this is the actual world, and every situation is going to play out. So the amount of overall happiness, if you're a utilitarian, across the universes is going to be the same no matter what you do. Um, so why not be a hedonist in, in this one, right? <laughs> but again, if oh, you're not free will, you don't yeah. have any, any choice over it. Conversely, right, if, if the Kripke story is the right one, then there's an actual world, and we have to get that actual world right. But they're not talking about that in Infinity War. They're talking about right. all these sort right. of parallel um, universes. Unless it's this, and that there's, you know... 14 million at 605 ways things can play out in the actual world, depending on all these variables. But I don't think they're doing that. Well, here's Because Doctor Strange travels. Right, between dimensions, and people from other dimensions can come into this dimension. Mm-hmm. So that suggests that it's. Because one way of looking at it would be like, um, you know, you've got a tree with a bunch of branches, but as you progress along, you know, what you might think the one particular line, like the trunk or whatever, that these other possibilities fall away. They're no longer mm-hmm. live. They're no longer genuine. Um, just one timeline actually transpires, but all the rest were possible until they weren't, right? Mm-hmm. You might think of it like that. But uh, if if you've got people doing inter-dimensional uh, travel, then right. that's off the table. Then. Right, right, exactly. Finally, I thought... We tie the discussion back into, into the Spider-Verse. I thought they were doing something really sweet and uh, the, something that I really appreciated with the, with the whole multiverse thing. And there's a theme kind of running throughout that anyone can wear the mask. And I, I think, in, in referring, obviously, to the Spider-Man mask. And I think this was social commentary. Mm-hmm. That And, you know, you've got this movie where you've got this young... Um, mixed race kid who is uh, who's Spider-Man and that's uh, I think it's fantastic to have that kind of representation we don't see enough superheroes superhero films made where the uh, where the superheroes are people of color Um, and so obviously it explores that in a great way (laughs) Um, and and I think you see with the multiverse that that contingent facts matter with respect to uh, who's gonna be Spider-Man, right? So, uh, were the universe Peter Parker is Spider-Man uh, in the common conception of what Spider-Man is gonna look like or whatever? But were things just a little bit different? The hero would be somebody else, mm-hmm. um, and it could be you. And if, and if they were a lot different, it would be a pig or a <laughs> right. black and white um, film noir Spider-Man <laughs> right. guy, right. right? Right. But they kind of just. It causes us to look not just at like superhero movies differently, but at 
life differently about what, you know, why, why people are the way they are and, and what set of possibilities are available to people. Uh, very dramatically depending on what timeline you're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, contingent circumstances. Mm-hmm. Don't take what you have for granted, folks. Okay, right. Time for some interviews. Today we talked to Gabe, Dan, Brandy, and Dale. The question we asked is, What's your favorite instance of the multiverse in pop culture? And why do you, what do you find philosophically interesting about the idea of multiple universes? So, um, first up was Gabe. So, one of my favorite uh, t- uh, discussions of the multiverse or a multiverse in pop culture would have to come from an episode of Community. Now, Community is typically this show about a group of friends who all go to a community college and they face various um, challenges and go to various classes. But the episode that deals with a multiverse is called Remedial uh, Chaos Theory, and it's in the third season. Uh, the premise is this. The group of friends all go to a house party hosted by um, two of the friends, Troy and Ovid. And um, then a pizza is delivered and there's a buzzer but someone needs to go downstairs in order to figure out who should go downstairs they roll a die and whoever um whoever's number comes up they go down the stairs and pick up the pizza and this is played over um seven different times um throughout the episode and each one each of these uh parallel uh scenes is uh really quite similar, but there are subtle differences between each one. And this just goes to show just how a slight change uh, can create a similar but distinct uh, universe outcome um, parallel set of situations. So, for instance, when a one was rolled on the die, uh, everything happened fairly normally. People went down. Uh, to get pizza, pies came out of the oven, uh, someone went to smoke in the bathroom, etc. But when su- when another number came up, uh, Troy had to go downstairs. And this created a catastrophe where a someone tripped, a gun went off, and so someone had a bullet wound. Then uh, a fire started up, and it was dubbed the darkest of all timelines in this. Anyway... This just goes to show how, with these slight changes, such as the change in a die roll, how that can create wildly different events. And this can help us understand a couple pretty interesting philosophical things. So, uh, first and foremost, this can help us understand counterfactuals. And so, by talking about what happens if, say, a three is rolled and Troy goes downstairs, we can say, if the three is rolled, then the house catches on fire and there's a gunshot. But if a one is rolled, um, the pizza is delivered normally, but there's some mild uh, social awkwardness going on, that sort of thing. This can be a great help in just figuring out 
uh, a way to talk about how um, how we can understand things that didn't actually happen. So talking about these multiple universes are a great are a great way for me to figure out what would happen if I wore a red shirt instead of a blue shirt, or uh, what would happen to my day if I decided to not go to work, or if I decided to uh, um, instead uh, go um, skydiving or something weird like that. Let's hear what Dan had to say. All right. One of my favorite pop culture references to the multiverse theory is a pretty simple one with the Super Mario Brothers. It was done in 1993. It kind of divulges into having parallel universes running independently of each other um, while in the same astro universe. Um, And it kind of dives into the question of can individuality really exist? Um, And I really love this concept of having an alternative timeline or not timeline, an alternative universe of people living in the same timeline as you with total different ideas and uh, developments um, being that, that the top surface of the humans developed out of the mammals and created the people that we know and love today. While simultaneously there was this the whole development of what happens to the reptilian stance as they're developing in the hollow earth theory beneath us, um, in their own independent time evolutionary timeline it was pretty cool um then i think one of the more impactful movies that i've seen with the pop with the multiverse theories of the butterfly effect with ashton kutcher um where he would create these he'd make these different choices about his life and it would make a real impact and i think that throws a lot of questions into every action that we make maybe creating an additional universe and does that impact your choices um how knowing that if you make a choice one way versus another a whole different subsect is going to develop out of that and then it kind of divulges into the the concept of free will as well Um, do we really have the idea of free will do we have those capabilities or are they things dictated to us throughout the universe based on other choices that are independent of our own life brandy what are your favorite instances of the multiverse and pop culture? I guess the um, the most interesting instance of multiverses in pop culture, um, see, I don't really watch a lot of, like, fantasy or, like, science fiction or anything like that, but I would have to say, like, Super Mario Bros. or The Legend of Zelda. I find that an interesting um, part of pop culture. Um, one thing that I find philosophically interesting about multiverse in general is that um there's really no way to like empirically falsify it so i mean inherently it is just philosophical but i wouldn't be surprised if if we did discover that there are multiverses um just as there are 100 billion stars in a, in a galaxy and 100 billion galaxies in a universe so i could see that being something in the future that maybe we might be able to observe, but, and then, um, I don't know. I just, I like the idea of like the black hole giving rise to like its own big bang, just because with the black hole, um, it's like, where does the light and all that matter go? It doesn't, it just, I don't, I guess it just goes into infinitely, infinitively more 
just a small piece of like huge mass, but very tiny. I don't really know how it works. It's fascinating though. Dale, what do you find interesting about multiple universes? So my favorite instance of the multiverse um, in pop culture, it actually comes from fringe. Um, And why I like that one so much is it's the most scientific. (laughs) Um, So if you're not familiar, you you know, the idea is that there's these two universes and Walt found a way to kind of pirate technology and stuff from the other side. Uh, So it crossed something. uh, And the big event in the show was that he saw his son get cured but the other side missed it. You know, so he's watching them do this, and the, the cure happens. The other Walter doesn't see it, and he and so he, he freaks out because his had died, and here the cure was. So he he breaks the laws of the universe. He crosses over. He he cures the other kid, but he takes the kid with him. Um, and, and so that becomes kind of a reoccurring theme. I think anytime I've seen the multiverse is that it becomes this, uh, we're going to take resources from the other side. Um, and it, it was interesting because you started to see physics and everything change. The universe alter itself because of these, these holes and these infractions. Um, and, and so it really struck a chord with me, um, kind of from Taoism, the idea that there is a kind of a cosmic balance that the universe tries to, you know, adhere to. And here you have instances where we're, we're puncturing holes to another universe and, you know, taking materials and crossing between the two. <clears throat> and the universe kind of has to be like, okay, we're going to deal with these changes now. Um, you, you know, and, and another one, kind of the same idea um, was Space Nine has the mirror universe um, and they, they, they accidentally cross into it and in Deep Space Nine they're following a timeline where the original series had already done this once. So Kara meets her double and her double explains to her that it was so disruptive the last time somebody crossed over that they have standing orders to, to kill anybody that crosses over because they can't tolerate any sort of huge deviations like that. Um, and, and that kind of became kind of the competing theme in Fringe as well, is because then the two universes began competing because as the two were collapsing, it was, well, what can we steal or what can we do to, to stabilize ours to hell with the other one? Um, and, and so like, to me, that's kind of the reoccurring theme of the, in most anything. It always becomes us versus them. And so it's, oh, we're, we're going to make sure we survive instead of you, you know. Um, and so it, it's, it's fascinating to see <laughs> every time we, we have these examples. It's always how can we benefit while taking advantage of someone else. So, Rach, what are we liking this week? Well, we've already talked a lot about Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, so we're we're liking that a lot. Um, Don't need to say too much more other than I would just point out, um, I don't think I've ever enjoyed animation more. Um, Mm -hmm. 
you know, felt like intense comic book experience. It looked cool at all times. It, you're talking about the actual animation itself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah not not an animated as film. an animated film. Yeah, right? no, just just incredible animation. Every every second of it was just a delight. I thought it had a really good soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Uh, good script. It was really funny. Yep. yep. All right. Good. What, what else are we liking? Okay, I'm I'm a little uh, anxious about this one. <laughs> <laughs> I, maybe I'll do it this way. Um, what am What am I, the only person on the planet, apparently liking? <laughs> Holmes and Watson. Right? Yeah, we went and saw Holmes and Watson. We love the movie Step Brothers, mm-hmm. and so and this was much in the same vein in terms of uh, Will Ferrell and I always say this guy's name wrong and John C. Riley. Yeah, um, and they were also in um, Talladega Nights together I way back when. Um, great, great combo. Yeah, so um, apparently everybody hates it. And as we were coming out, um, Rachel pointed out that, that it didn't seem to have much of a plot. It got so, 9% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, yeah maybe, maybe that's working against it. <laughs> that said, I was laughing like crazy. I, you know, just every dumb gag um, was perfect. I, I thought the performances were a lot of fun. I thought the idea was, was very good, um, like the rest of the cast. Maybe my expectations were lower than most people's. <laughs> I thought it was Holmes and Yo-Yo, a remake of that horrible cop show from the 70s. <laughs> no. And so, you know, anything being better than Holmes and Yo-Yo, um, <laughs> Holmes and Watson was, was bound to be good. Um, we also saw over the holiday um, the new Grinch movie. Oh, yeah. Right? And that was um, pretty good. I um, thought it was much much truer to the original story and the original animated film than the Jim Carrey Grinch movie, which I did not like. Yeah, I thought I thought that was pretty bad. This was a lot of fun. Um, again, looked great. Had a great soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, who, who did the soundtrack? There's kind of a family inside joke here because for a while, the only one who knew was our son and and he wouldn't tell us. We had to look it up for ourselves. Um, and then finally, um, the, the thing that I've been enjoying um, by far the most lately is we just wrapped up season one of Ozark. Yeah, on Netflix. Really good. And um, Highly recommend. Yeah, shockingly good, um, given that it's Jason Bateman, who I always think is fine, but I think of him as a rom-com guy. Yeah, he's got right? chops. And, he's, yeah, and yeah. you know, he's directing some of it. And, um Season two, we've, we've watched the first episode, and that promises to be very good as well. Happy to see that it's renewed for a third season. Um, and then everybody's talking about um, is it Bird Box, right? So, Which um, we've not seen. And we've not seen that yet. But I've seen 5,000 memes about it. Uh, that's what I was going to say. I'm, I'm really <laughs> enjoying like all the cryptic memes, <laughs> that I don't, memes that I don't understand. Um, that said, we'll, we'll certainly be watching that soon. Um, and then there's a new Black Mirror movie out that's interactive, and that's I've got that on my sort of immediate um, radar as well. Yeah, me too. Now it's time for our listener musing segment. Our listener musing comes from Dane. Dane writes, My listener musing revolves around the Matrix. Suppose you are Neo, and you have a friend who wants to live in the Matrix as it is with no alterations, be it for good or ill. They are aware it's all fake, but enjoy their illusion life. Would it be unethical of you to reprogram their life, even though it does not truly exist? For example, giving them a million dollars or something sadistic like shooting them, healing the wound, and shooting them again repeatedly. 
Furthermore, would it be unethical to pull them out of the matrix in the event that their physical body was an immediate danger, forcing them to live in the real world instead of dying without being aware of really dying within the matrix? All right. So kind of a lot going on there, right? Mm -hmm. So you've you've got the friend's desire to be in the matrix as it is. You've got Mm -hmm. the possibility of respecting that desire, but altering it, altering it for better, altering it for worse. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... Assuming you, you put them in, you um, you pull them out. And just off the bat, you sort of wonder, you know, why is, why is Neo in charge of this? But um, <laughs> let's, let's play along because it's, it's an interesting question. I think that underpinning this whole question really is a, is a thought about whether or not we should be respecting, we, we are morally required to respect an inauthentic choice made by a person. Oh, well, that's uh, interesting. Right, so... Um, this person wants to live in a world that he knows isn't real, right? Mm-hmm. So at the point at which it's already not real, it, it, what harm could there be in altering it? One might think. I'm not saying that's my answer. But, like, you know, he's already, he's already living in a world divergent from truth, mm-hmm. right? And he uh, wants to... Uh, live in the matrix for good or for ill, and he doesn't know what's in what's in the matrix, right? It could be getting shot repeatedly and being brought back to life, or winning a million dollars. Right. Okay. So, so what, let me play devil's advocate with that. Oh, so, that's not my view. I'm just kind of. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah. But but you ask this sort of rhetorical question, right? Um, he's already devoted truth. Why not? Um, or rejected truth. Why not? Um, you know, give him a better experience mm-hmm. or a worse experience if you're sadistic mm-hmm. and so forth. But uh, suppose that. Um, you know, so you and I both like the show Naked and Afraid, right? Mm-hmm. And and routinely what you see on that show is people at the start of their um, 21 days going, I can do this. I can take whatever the producers throw at me, whatever mm-hmm. this environment. They, they, they're set on beating that thing. They're not just set on doing something challenging or difficult, right? It's, so there's, there's something authentic about their inauthentic experience. I mean, the whole mm-hmm. thing is kind of contrived. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not really alone. There's cameramen everywhere. There's food mm-hmm. around the corner and all that. So you can imagine somebody saying, I don't know what's in the Matrix, but I'm going to take whatever the Matrix throws at me, right? And then you're messing with it, making it better, making it worse, makes it not that, right? So if you're sort of respecting that desire, there is mm-hmm. something authentic about the desire, okay. even if, if it's wrapped up in this, I'm going to handle whatever inauthentic thing you have. I mean, it strikes me as being sort of not unlike someone who's going to an amusement park they've never been to and saying, I don't know what they got there, but whatever roller coasters they have, I'm going to ride them, right? So that mm-hmm. it's this artificial, scary thing. You know you're not going to die. I mean, you might, you know, like one out of 100,000 roller coaster riders die. But, you know, you generally think it's safe. Um, but you want to you meet the challenge. Right, okay. But presumably the, the matrix is programmed by something, someone or something. Does it make a morally relevant difference who it's programmed by? Yeah. Like if it, it happens to be Neo, that makes it not authentic anymore? But if it's programmed by whatever, I can't recall, supercomputers or whatever, then, uh-huh. then it's authentic. Sentient computers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just because it's the authentic thing. I mean, you know, this is why um, some people will pay a fortune for a Rolex when you can get something that's, you know, 
um, molecule for molecule identical with it, but a knockoff for, you know, um, $400. And, and if you just want something that looks like it, you know, on the street corner in New York City, on almost any street corner in Manhattan, you can get one for 11 bucks, right? But, but mm. yeah, there's, you know, contingent arbitrary facts manage to make things authentic, right? A, you know, a really good Beatles cover band playing at your wedding is not as good as the Beatles playing at the wedding, even if it sounds exactly the same and, and maybe even looks better. You could imagine that, you know, the fake Beatles are 10% more handsome than the real Beatles or more charismatic or something. But then you might think, coming from another direction, you might think you are morally obligated to make things better. So I'm, I'm actually thinking of a parallel um, here between the case that Dane has described and uh, the problem of evil and, and uh, you know, the existence of God. So in a sense, you know, God's playing the role of matrix programmer, whether that be Neo or whomever, mm-hmm. right? Um, does God have an obligation to just let things roll as they roll? Or assuming that we had a choice about whether to come to earth in the first place and assuming in this context that God exists, right? Or should God be stepping in and preventing bad things from happening, the really bad things? Yeah, if if you've got all powerful and all all good, right? Mm -hmm. Omnipotent, omnibenevolent. Mm-hmm. Heck yeah. Then he should be stepping in. Yeah, yeah. So the, it kind of, I mean, the parallel there kind of seems like, well, if Neo can step in, I mean, maybe there's a distinction to be made between um, what's authentic and what's good. Mm-hmm. Um, existentialists tend to value authenticity pretty highly, uh, but you might think that the right thing to do is not promote a higher level of authenticity, but pr- uh, promote a higher level of moral value, mm-hmm. reduce suffering improve happiness because, uh, or increase happiness because once he's in the matrix, he's not going to know he's in it. He's just going to be having negative or positive experiences and presumably he'll want more positive than negative. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Good. What, what about the other question? Just briefly, the pull them out. You recognize, you know, your friend's going to, cause you can read the code on the screen. Oh my gosh, it's going to die in 30 seconds. If I don't yank him out. Hmm. Um, I say yank him out. Yank him out. And if he wants to die and he gets mad at you, kill him. <laughs> Okay, right, resolved. Right then and there. All right, thanks a lot, Dane. That, that was great. We could talk about this forever. All right, well, that's a wrap. Episode 13 is in the can. And once again, for the first time in um, 2019, everything has come up sharp enough. So what, what do we got on, line, um, or on tap for, for next week? Well, we, we're tackling an oldie but a goodie, mm-hmm. uh, The Princess Bride. We've got a book on The Princess Bride and Philosophy, and we'll be talking to some of the authors of the chapters in that book. Yeah, lots of great philosophical issues there. All right, so um, in the meantime, Happy New Year to everybody. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. See you next week.